Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this sermon from June 20th, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder continues in our What is the Bible series with part six, David. Posing the key questions of what does the Bible do with power and how do we deal with disorientation, Pastor Craig dives into the biblical text pointing out where David embodies the coming true king and where he falls short. For more information, please visit compasscfc.com. Well, hey, friends. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And if you're just joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a sermon series called What is the Bible? Where we're asking, maybe answering, but mostly asking that what is the Bible? And so uh, we are this morning, we're at the middle of this series, and it is the mountain peak. Um, But before we talk about the mountain peak, I have a bone to pick with you. All right, something happened last week, uh, and nobody said anything to me, all right? So we forgot to do the hand motions, and nobody was bothered. Oh, Stephanie was bothered. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to rise. Everybody stand up. Do we feel silly? Yes, we do. All right, nobody feels more silly than me, but here's what we want to do. We want to we back up and see the forest, right? We're really good at looking at branches, and the branches are beautiful, and there's life on the branches. We love the branches, right? We're going to back up and see the forest and see the beauty of that. And I want you to remember this, so we got some hand motions, all right? Let's see if we can remember them. It's been a while, all right? But we got this. I I believe in you, okay? All right, we good? Here we go. Creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, Torah, David, prophets, Jesus and his kingdom, Jesus and his cross, church, Paul, revelation. All right, well done, well done. Great job, you can have a seat, great job, well done. All right, I want you to try this sentence on like a jacket. Try it on for size, see how it fits. Wear it around a little bit, walk around the store before you leave. All right, what do we think about this sentence? If I do good, Things will go well. Whoa. Instead of walk around the store, all right? You got to walk around the store a little bit, all right? Yeah, it's a, it's a weird leatherman. Nobody, nobody wears these anymore, but all right, hang on. All right, so hey, if I do good, I know that's like weird grammar. If I do good things, right? If I do good, what does it mean to do good things? Like if I believe in God, if I trust God, if I love God, If I pursue justice, if I love righteousness, things will go well. I'll have clarity. I'll know what to do. I'll receive blessing, whatever that might look like. If I do good, things will go well. That lines up with our experience, right? Let's say you're a roommate. You want to be a really thoughtful roommate. So you go out of your way. You go into your roommate's room. You're finding dirty dishes in places where dishes don't belong. You're cleaning them. You're scrubbing common areas. You're working really hard to be a good roommate. Things go well, right? Everyone's like, man, I live with the most thoughtful person. They're so kind and generous. I see you. Whew, I just want to keep renewing this lease. I just want to keep living with you. I want to keep the good times flowing. But let's say you work really hard at your job. You work really hard at your job. You're good at your job. You're honing your craft. You're taking on more responsibility. You're trying to really care for your coworkers well, right? You get the promotion, right? 
Not the person who plays office politics. You get the promotion. You did good and things go well. Or, or let's say that you're single and you want to be married. So please don't, please don't misunderstand me. The Bible has a very high view of singleness, all right? Very high view of singleness. It was, it was a view of singleness that rocked the ancient world. Amazing, incredible. We have a high view of singleness, all right? But let's just say you're a single person who wants to be married, all right? So what do you do? You're like, man, I'm just going to like really be the, the perfect partner. All right? I'm going to be funny. I'm going to be adventurous but not crazy. I'm going to be available. I'm going to be a great listener, right? And when you do that, what happens? People line up at your door to take you out, right? If we do good, things go well, right? Well, if your experience has been anything like my experience, that is not always the case. You're the perfect roommate. You're cleaning. What happens? They accuse you of being divisive. Oh, they're trying to make me feel bad. When the lease is up, they kick you out. Your name's on the lease. I didn't know you could kick me out, but I'm getting kicked out, right? You work really hard at work, and let's be honest, we all know that person who plays office politics, they keep getting promoted. You get, you get twice the responsibility, the same pay, and they just they run up the ladder. Or if you're single and you're really doing it right, you're trusting God, you're, 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 you're just living with open hands and you're really cultivating and working on just being a, like an awesome human being, Friday night comes along and you're alone scrolling through eHarmony. If we do good, things don't always go well. I remember when I was a young pastor, <laughs> younger, younger, uh, Nick, we'll call him Nick. Nick came into my office. I'm like fresh, all right? What's going on in my head? And Nick's coming to my office, like, just don't say this, don't say that, don't say that, just listen, listen, look like you're listening, right? <sighs> okay, Nick comes in my office. Nick's a single dad. He's a single dad who's working two jobs, and they're awful jobs. One's at a factory, one's nights, and he's working really hard. And he only gets to see his kids a couple weekends out of the month. Maybe he has like one week every so often. It was like a math problem trying to figure out when he can see his kids. And what happens? His wife wants more money, his ex-wife. And his kids just come and hang out with him, and they tell him how great dad is. And he realizes, oh, that's not me. That's this new guy. And he says to me, he says, like, I trust God for salvation, but, like, is everything in between now and then just up for grabs? So I believe in God. I believe, like, I believe I'm going to go be with him when I die. Got that. What about the here and now? He's looking at me saying, what do I do? What would you say to Nick? How would you help Nick navigate the disorientation? Is there any hope for Nick? See, I'm curious. I wonder if we all deeply believe, if we've got it in our bones somehow, that if we do good, if we do things right, if we believe in God, if we, if we tithe our money, if we work really hard at work and keep our head down, if we do the right things, things should go well for us. We may not articulate it like that, but I think we deeply believe that. I think, we think, I think that's wrapped up in our bones. Because when things don't go well, 
When we try to be that perfect parent who like, man, kid came home like two hours past curfew. I'm super patient. Oh my gosh, I just want to communicate care. I'm secretly furious, but I'm communicating care. I'm being really gracious. And the kid still does whatever they want. We believe things should go well. How do I know that? Because we start to be, what am I doing wrong? We just work on, we trust the equation. Doing good equals doing well. And so we're like, well, what am I, what am I doing that's not good? What, what's wrong? And there's a character in the biblical story who helps us navigate this disorientation. See, life in the kingdom, life in the kingdom means on some level embracing some disorientation. Ah, I wish I didn't have to say that to you this morning. I, I really like the message of Proverbs. If you do well, things go well. Like if you wake up early, you get the worm. It's gross. <laughs> but there's an Ecclesiastes. Doesn't matter what you do, that jerk is just going to keep getting promotions at the office. Disorienting. We don't like disorientation. We like clarity. We like, okay, step one, did it. Things went well. Great. Step two, three, and four now are super clear. I can spend time planning, mapping this out, and then I'll just take steps two, three, and four. Nailed it. There's a phrase that the biblical authors use, and it's so easy to say, but it's so hard to live. The just shall live by faith. We would love it if it said, the just shall live by clarity. The just shall live by sleeping well every night and having all the answers, waking up refreshed and being able to just, you know, okay, this is what we need to do. I'm the just. But life in the kingdom means embracing a level of disorientation that makes us uncomfortable. There is a character who is mentioned more, so other than Jesus, this character is mentioned more in both the New Testament and the Old Testament than anybody else. It's not even close. It's Jeremiah. Just kidding, it's David. It's David. <laughs> mentioned a thousand times in the Old Testament. He's all over it. And my concern, one of the things that we do is we take the stories of Scripture and we just flatten the people right out of them. All right, we're like, well, of course it was easy for David. He's a David. God, God, like, I, you know, David doesn't have this terrible person at the office. David's story, David's story is an invitation to watch a man navigate disorientation. He came into the kingdom when there was another king, and it was a long journey to him being king. He came into the kingdom with a great amount of calamity. There was a giant monster, we're going to talk about that, threatening Israel's safety. And everybody, everybody was like, oh, this is scary, we don't know what to do. Nobody was like, hey, we got clarity. Disorientation all around. And when we see this king, this, this promised one, 
When we see him navigating disorientation, it teaches us how we can face and navigate our disorientation. This king teaches us what it looks like to live in the kingdom. That's part of the reason he's a giant. All right? So we're going we're gonna to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, but I got I to gotta just set it up a little bit. All right? So 1 Samuel 2 is where we're going to be. If we think of, like, the biblical world as kind of like Disneyland, all right, and we've got our maps, if we're being honest, this is the part of the maps where most of us get lost. This is part of the story. The kings, it gets real confusing. We're like, okay, so I understood, like, Israel was in slavery. They get rescued, the Exodus stuff. There's some judges, and then there's these kings, and then somehow we're in the New Testament, Like, this part of the story was really foggy for me for a long time. We're going to try to help bring some clarity to that fog a little bit. But really what we want to do is we want to help navigate who is this figure and what can we learn from him. So Samuel is where we're going to be today. Samuel was originally one one big scroll. And it was like, you can't, it was too big. So they put it into two scrolls, okay? Because, like, you know, it's uncomfortable to, like, lug this thing around. So they had two scrolls of the story of Samuel. We know them as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but it's one big story, okay? So it's one big story, and here's how that story starts. It starts, with a, a, it, it starts out, out of the gates, getting out of Judges. The last verse of Judges says this. In those days, there was no king of, in Israel. So in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everything was super dope. Everything was great. Those days, there was no king in Israel. Life was awesome. We just had it made in the shade. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's an echo back to Genesis, right? Doing what's right in our own eyes versus trusting God. This is bad. This is not good. So there's some tension. What happens, though? This barren woman, she can't have kids. She goes into the temple, and she prays that God would create a king maker. So send somebody here who's going to be a king maker, all right? So the book starts with prayer, and it's this barren woman praying for a king maker. The book ends, so 2 Samuel ends with that king again praying. This time, though, he's praying for mercy because he's made a terrible decision. And that's super clutch, okay? This book is bookended by prayer, okay? Then that's a little clue. How do we start to navigate disorientation? I don't know, but prayer is going to have something to do with it, all right? So she has a child. Amazing. Whoa! And in the Bible, when barren women have kids, watch out. Something very big is about to happen. Okay? So this barren woman has a child. And so she, she, she writes a poem of praise to God. And there's a lot of instruction. We can learn a lot from this wise woman named Hannah. All right? She can teach us this morning what life in the kingdom of God is really like. And she gives us... This is where we get a lot of clarity in the biblical story about what life in the kingdom is like. It's an upside-down kingdom. That I believe a theme verse, not the theme verse, but a theme verse for the whole Hebrew Bible is is in this prayer. All right? So if God's going to make a king, if he's going to create a king, he's going to do it differently than all the other nations. They do power like might makes right. Right? So I disagree with you about how we should live. I disagree with you about what's for dinner. Who wins? Me. Why? I got a bigger army. All right? That's the ancient Near East. In Israel, though, these people who are going to reverse the curse do power differently. It's this upside down 
In the kingdom of God, the weak become powerful and the powerful become weak. God uses our weakness. Oh, we do not like that message. I, I am, I'm just going to linger here for a second. When I say to you, hey, God uses our weakness, it, oh, no. God, can you use, like, my talents and abilities? Nope. God uses our weakness. Oh, all right. But through the story of David, we learn to see how that's amazing. It's really cool. It actually flips everything upside down, and we start to see there's really, really good news. It's hard. It hurts. Life comes at you like a hurricane. An RV just flew by. But like in the storm, when we learn to both listen to God and to embrace our weakness, we experience a new type of power, something the world had never seen before. So that's my outline today. You're welcome. If you want to just log off YouTube. Uh, we're going to learn to listen to God, and we're going to learn to embrace our weakness. We're going to listen to God and embrace our weakness. That's the whole story of David, all right? But we're going to start to, we're going to get launched out of here from Hannah's prayer, all right? Listen to all the times she talks about, there's a lot of words like proud, exalted, what happens to the humble, what happens to the poor. This is the upside down kingdom. Be listening for those words. So 1 Samuel chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to read that, and if you would, just out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand with me as we read scripture? This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Horn is another word for like power. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Hear that contrast? Those who were full hire themselves out for work, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. And this is what I think could be a theme verse of the whole Bible. It is not by strength that one prevails. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. God, we ask for your help today. Father, we don't like being disoriented. We love clarity. God, I pray that we would see the invitation this morning is to follow you. The invitation is to embrace listening to you and to embrace our weakness because then we can really see you at work and do things beyond what we could imagine. So God, I pray that we would by faith follow and trust and we trust you in the midst of disorientation. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If it's true, if it's true that the kingdom means that we embrace a level of disorientation, how? How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, the very first thing, that, the, the, the way, the way that it, the way we have to do it, the way that we must embrace disorientation is we have to start with a posture of listening to God. We have to start with a posture of listening to God. Navigating through chaos and disorientation can only be done if we listen to God. And that's exactly the picture that the biblical authors paint of David. And it's clearly seen in Hannah's prayer. And then as we fast, through, fast forward through Samuel, we get to this story that's very familiar. David and Goliath. But I didn't start with David and Goliath. I started with Hannah's prayer because that sets us up on a trajectory that will help us understand David and Goliath way differently. So here's the, remember, we want to put flannel graphs in storage for forever, okay? Here's the thing. One of the problems with familiarity, like we all know the David and Goliath story, and it can just, you know, okay, yeah, we face our giants, and it can kind of become boring. But, like, we're missing how the original audience heard that story, and we're missing a lot of the depth to it, all right? So the story of David and Goliath really is an exercise for us to see what it looks like to listen to God, okay? In Hannah's prayer... In 1 Samuel 2, verse 3, it says that God hates a word. There is one word that God absolutely cannot stand. He's like, I, please stop using this word. I don't like it. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, it literally, so the Hebrew literally says, stop using the word tall. I do not like the word tall. It's like, so just, the NIV translates it, stop using proud words. It's kind of like, what? what is it? why is God saying stop using the word tall? That doesn't make any sense. I want to walk you through, though, how this is like actually a huge theme, a huge theme in the story of David and how it invites us into this disorientation, okay? I'm six foot one, I think. My license says I'm six foot one. A couple weeks ago, though, someone was like, I think you're six foot two. I was like, yeah. I was, Thank you for being here at this church. We, we like that, all right? I think I'm about six foot one, okay? And, and here's, here's a reality. It's like we know because of like diets and just life expectancy and all that, I'm, I'm probably taller than most of the biblical characters. Like we just know from archaeology, these people are short, okay? So I'm a tall person saying that God doesn't like tall people, okay? And it's not, if you're tall, like, oh my gosh, that's, don't hang in there with me for a second. When the Bible says God doesn't like using the word tall, here's what he's talking about, all right? Hang on. We're going to get there, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, I grew up in a small Baptist church in New England, and I remember sitting in Sunday school with Mrs. Satterley. And God bless Mrs. Satterley, but Mrs. Satterley told me this. She said, we were talking about this story, and here's what she said. Israel wanted a king, and that was bad. Has anybody heard that? That it was bad for Israel to want a king? Okay, there's a few of us. All right. 
I don't believe that that's what the biblical story is telling us. I don't believe it was bad for them to want a king, all right? Why? Well, we read it earlier in, in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and it was super bad, all right? Here's, there's laws about king. Remember last week we were in the law? The law? There's a ton of laws about kings. Why would you have laws about kings if you weren't supposed to have kings? But listen to, this. A, there's a, a really crucial phrase about these laws about kings. All right, this is Deuteronomy 17. If you want to know the laws about kings, that's where it is, all right? When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you and take possession of it and you've settled it and you say, let us set a king over us, okay? And then this part's, I think, where it gets bad. Like all the nations around us, okay? I think it's not wrong that they have a king. They have laws for kings. Uh, they're supposed to be a kingdom. God tells Abraham, you know, your children are going to give birth to many kings. You're a kingdom of priests. Kingdoms have kings. Leadership isn't bad. The problem is, though, they wanted leadership like the, like the nations. Well, how did the nations do kings? It was centralized power. It's, I'm in charge. I have all the power. You don't like me? Well, we'll get rid of you. Thank you very much. And so Israel is like, well, we want a nation. We want to be a nation like them. They're real nations. We don't like this disorientation of having to trust God. So we want a nation to be like the, we want a king to be like the nations. And so this is where this gets really important. We want a strong king. We want someone who has strength. We want someone who we know we can trust. They're going to go into battle and fight for us. So in 1 Samuel 8, they pick a guy called Saul. What do we know about Saul? Well, this is 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 2. I heard it. It's buzzing. Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome as a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. Wouldn't that be so cool if the Bible said that about you? Hang on. And he was a head taller than everybody else. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Why is that bad? Because what did Israel just say just a few verses before that? They find Samuel. So Israel says to Samuel, hey, you're old. Thanks. And your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What is the biblical author saying? He's saying nobody's listening to God. God said if you pick a king, all right, it has to be the king I pick. You can't be like the other nations. And what does Israel say? We want a king like the nations. That's what you're supposed to do. And what's the, the, who's the king they pick? A tall guy. All right? What's wrong with picking a tall guy for your king? Besides the fact that we learned earlier God doesn't like the word tall, there's another problem with picking a tall guy for a king. There's a taller guy. All right? So Israel's like, we got our tall guy, and then a taller guy shows up. Goliath. Uh-oh. Here's the thing about trusting our own strength. Somebody's stronger. Somebody's stronger. Someone's smarter. Someone's more clever. Someone's better at crafting words together. When we trust our strength, we really quickly run into a scarcity mindset. We've got to be the best. Because we know we're not the best. Trusting your strength is a recipe for disaster. And that is exactly what the biblical authors are trying to help us see. God doesn't like tall. Why? Does God not like me? No. God doesn't like people who trust their own talents and abilities, their wisdom. 
their ability to see things, how smart they are, how relational they are. When we, those things aren't bad, but when we trust them, we are setting ourselves up on a collision course with a giant. Now, here's where it gets cool. Okay. Kids, how does David kill Goliath? Thank you. Well, you child at heart. Yeah. How, Tyler, how does David kill Goliath? With a rock. All right. Why does David kill Goliath with a rock? Because he listens to God. What? Yep. Leviticus 24, 14 says, If there is a blasphemer among you, take him outside the camp and stone them. What's happening here in this story? David is listening to the voice of the Lord. No one else around him is. All right? And the tall guy is afraid. And then his brother, no one's doing anything. And this guy is listening to the voice of the Lord. And he's like, hey, guys, uh, the Bible says this. We've come into a situation that's that. Uh, I think we should go with God's word, not what we see. He's listening to the voice of the Lord. But what's really happening too? Well, if we keep reading in Deuteronomy 17 about what type of king Israel was supposed to have. Keep reading in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself. So he's to, you know, this is like penmanship class. He's supposed to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. So he's supposed to have his own personal copy of the law that he wrote. All right? What else is he supposed to do? Taking from that, that is of the Levitical priest. It's to be with him, and he, he is to read it all the days of his life. He's to read it every day. So that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. How do we live in disorientation? We learn to listen to God. David is setting up an example of, hey, I'm someone who listens to God. He's acting like the true king when no one else around him is. It is really hard to follow God when you have to do it alone. That's disorienting. How do we do that? We listen. When life is disorienting, when you get that phone call that says, yeah, it's cancer. When you come into your workplace and it's like, hey, we're downsizing. When your kids who you love stop loving you back and it's disorienting, how do you hear from God in those seasons? You gotta slow down. Part of the reason, part of the reason David is one of the most popular figures in the Hebrew Bible, his name's used over a thousand times because there's this massive book with his name all over it. It's called the Psalms. All right? David was an artist, he wrote poetry. All right? For those of us who have artists in our lives, when they come into disorienting situations, are they like, okay, Here's the problem. I see the problem. Here's a potential solution. Here's another potential solution. So problem, and then these two solutions meets this answer. Are those artists? No, we have another word for those people. It's called engineers. All right? David was not an engineer. He was an artist. And there's a whole book of the Bible that's him sorting out being disoriented. God, are you listening? Are you, are you deaf? Hello? Do not close your ears to me. 
But he's learning to listen to God in the midst of disorientation. Don't flatten his story. It was so easy for him. It's not easy. But are we moving at a pace that lets us listen to God? There's an old book. I don't remember who wrote it. Read it years ago. It's called like the three mile per hour something. I don't even This is great. Uh, what, what is three miles per hour? It's, it's, that's how we walk. That's the speed of a walk. God meets us when we walk. Not at a run. It's called a walk with Jesus, not a run with Jesus. All right? When we slow down, we can hear the voice of the Lord. Slowing down is an act of trust. Slowing down when things, the car's spinning out of control and saying, Lord, help me hear you. God, this thing is disorienting. This, this diagnosis, my job is confusing. God, I want to look inwardly and say, what did I do that's wrong? All right? Help me speak to me. Help me hear. What am I missing? That's part of the way we navigate disorientation. We have to listen. And look, what happens to David after he walks through this wildly disorienting situation where nobody who, who's, the people who are supposed to be doing things aren't doing those things. He alone is the one who's listening to God. What happens next, right? It's awesome, right? It's rainbows and butterflies. They throw a parade, right? No, he gets run out of town. He, he goes on the run. He goes to this place called Ziklag, Ziklag. But what happens when he's out on the run? He has more influence in Israel than Saul who's sitting on the throne. He's defeating Israel's enemies, the Philistines, while Saul is trusting in his own strength. The tall guy is not doing anything. All right? Sometimes when God spins the car, sometimes it's to give us the desires of our hearts, but it's not how we thought he would give us the desires of our hearts. It's so that we can experience more of him. It's so that we can step into a fuller, deeper relationship, but it's not how we thought it was going to go, and it's confusing. Listening, learning to pray this when it's disorienting. God, what's the better thing you're doing? God, help me see. I don't see. I'm not going to minimize the disorientation. I'm not going to say, this isn't confusing. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. No, I'm going to say, hey, the car's spinning, God, but help me see what you're doing. I'm not getting along with my parents. I thought I was doing things right. Help me see what you're doing. Help me see. And learning to listen and walking slow enough so we can hear. So we can hear. That's what David is modeling. And, and, and David, by contrasting with Saul, he's saying, like, hey, I'm, I'm not the tall guy here. I'm the little guy. Like, look, again, this is very cliche about David and Goliath. Who brings rocks to fight a giant? All right? He's embracing weakness. Whatever Malcolm Gladwell says about David and Goliath, love Malcolm Gladwell. He's one of my favorite authors. That book is ridiculous. Uh, but whatever Malcolm Gladwell says, like, this is not, this is, this is the underdog facing a giant. He's learning to trust God's power. So at the end of it, everyone's just like, hey, God did that. Yeah, we weren't doing anything. God totally did that. He surpassed our trust. And here's where it starts to get really crazy. Remember Saul's the tall guy, right? Remember that? And another tall guy shows up? Okay. One day, 
one day we're going to do a sermon series on violence in the Old Testament, all right? Because there's problems. We have questions, all right? Wow, what's happening, all right? So I don't mean to minimize the confusion, but we hang on there for a second. Remember, so how does, how does David kill Goliath with a rock, all right? But then what does he do? He cuts his head off, okay? That's violent, right? Sorry. Why, though? Okay? There's a clue in the text. Remember Saul? How tall is Saul? He's a head taller than everybody else. Okay? How does Saul die? In uh, 1 Samuel 31, he dies in battle. But then what happens? The Philistines come to him. This is 1 Samuel 31, verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. The word for tall is Giboa. The word they found him on Mount Gilboa. So it's a Hebrew like poetry and pun saying the tall guy was found on the tall mountain. It's like a, a pun. Right? It's highlighting he's the tall guy. Remember that. What do they do? They cut off his head. Huh. What's happening here? If you trust your strength, God knows how to bring you down a notch. Also, if you trust your strength, your strength might be the means of your demise. Goliath, I'm powerful. I'm threatening. But then someone more powerful and more threatening showed up. Yahweh. Whoops. Saul, I'm tall. I'm going to lead through my strength. Where does he die? In battle. David, not tall. How does he die? Old age. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. It's part of the, I mean, this is an embodiment of this upside-down kingdom. We don't respond to violence with violence. That, I mean, that's Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught nonviolence. We, we respond, we respond to, to attacks of power with weakness. And that's what David is embodying us. He's saying if we live in this kingdom, we embrace our weakness. And when we embrace our weakness... We will see God work in ways that we could have never created. We could have never gotten around to. But instead, if we say, no, I got this. I'm wise. I'm strong. That will set us off on a trajectory where we will run into roadblocks. But when we embrace his strength and his wisdom, we start to actually see real power. And this is all throughout the biblical story, right? What does Paul say to Timothy who's scared? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the... This is all over the biblical story. If we say, I got this, I got this in my might, in my strength, we are headed for a rude awakening. Remember we said that the book opens with the prayer of someone praying for a king maker and it closes with a prayer of a king? That prayer of a king in 2 Samuel is David took a census and it brought about a plague, a disaster. And so he's praying, God, stop, I'm sorry. All right? What's, why do people take censuses, sensei? They do that so they can size up how big they are for war so they know how big their army is. What's David doing? He's acting like Saul. Oh. Like the story with Bathsheba is bad, all right? But this is worse. 
the bookends. Hey, God will, God will exalt the lowly. Trust him. And it ends with David saying, I, I, no, I trust me. I trust me. One of, the, one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible is 2 Samuel 7. Wish we had time to unpack it. But what it, 2 Samuel 7 is where God makes an agreement with David. And in it, he talks, it's, it's Stephen Dempster, the Old Testament scholar, says it's the most important chapter in the Old Testament. It's really confusing. Let me just give you a, a glimmer of what's happening in there. God sets up his relationship with David. David wants to build a house for God. And God says, hey, 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 I'll build you a house. Meaning you want to build me a temple, I'll build you a kingdom, a house. All right? And he says, here's how this relationship's going to work. All right? So I'll be like a father to you, and you'll be my son. And if you're an obedient son, this relationship will work. I'll be the father, you'll be the son, and your kingdom will have no end. You'll reverse the curse. You'll bring peace. There'll be no more hurricanes, no more humidity in June. Like, you, you, if we do this right, through you, you will reverse the curse. All right? That's, that's amazing. All right? What happens, though? He takes a census, and God says, nope, we're done. It's over. Here's what's nuts, though, about the biblical story. Where we, have to, we have to see the whole forest. This whole father-son thing, God says, hey, I'll make this agreement to build your kingdom. You'll be an obedient son. I'll be a good father. And at this point, the, there's, basically there's 39 kings that follow, and four of them are good sons, but it's like not really that great. And so it's just disobedient son after disobedient son after disobedient son. It's kind of like they're driving a school bus and it woo, goes off a cliff and bam, and it somehow survives. And then they just look for the next cliff in that school bus. That's like the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And then God raised up all these prophets. They're like, hey, stop. Like, there's, don't, you don't have to go off the cliff. They're like, no, we're going to try this. Woo, okay. All right. And what happens in the story is finally we get to a place that says, whoa, if this relationship is going to work, God has to provide the obedient son. Because we can't do it. David gets close, fails. Solomon gets closer, fails. Everybody else is bad news bears for the most part. And if this relationship really is going to, if God's going to really reverse the curse, he has to provide. Now, when Jesus shows up, just think Mark's gospel, Mark 10, what do they say about him? The Son of Man, which is a royal title, did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is the embodiment of this upside-down kingdom. A huge question, a huge question that the Bible wants us to ask is what do we do with power? Are we going to do what Saul and Goliath did? Are we going to wield power and try to control things and trust in our own strength and our own might? Or are we going to embrace weakness and listen to God and live in the kingdom? And what does Jesus say? I did not come to be served. I didn't come to do Goliath and Saul stuff. I came to serve. And how did he serve? By his wounds we are healed. Do strong people get wounded? No, that's the whole thing of being strong. You can, you're coming at me to hurt me. I'll show you I can hurt you. Jesus embraced the weakness. 
and did what David could never do. That's actually the, that's why David cuts off Goliath's head. Because it's an echo back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Remember in Genesis chapter 3, they eat from the wrong tree, things go bad, God makes a promise. He says, hey, uh, Eve, you're going to have a child. A child is coming from you that's going to crush the head of the serpent. All right? So David is a child of Eve who crushes the head of the enemy of Israel. And everyone's like, woohoo! This is our guy. We're headed off into the sunset. Yes! And then there's hints all along the way. Oh, boy, this might not be the guy. And God says, hey, I'll provide. If you listen to me, if you embrace weakness, I provide. And I'll do way more than David could ever do. Jesus is a truer and better David. You ever wonder why Jesus was born in Bethlehem? It's kind of weird. He's a king, right? King should be born in Jerusalem, the palace, the capital, but he's born in Bethlehem. Why? Because he's a new David. He came to finish what David started and could never do. And the invitation is not for us to, in our own strength, in our own power, get his attention. It's an invitation to trust him and let him do what we could never do. I had to learn this the hard way. All right? I was a lot like my friend Nick in my office. I totally trusted God. Yeah, when I die, I'll go be with God. I have no idea what's happening. In the meantime, it's all just kind of like a Russian roulette game. Bad things happen. Oh, okay. Good things happen. I don't know how to make sense of this, but we'll just kind of keep just... I remember I told someone once, you know, life, life is kind of like you're like Sisyphus, right? You just push that rock up the hill. You enter in no control. It might roll down. I didn't have the language Nick had of like, can I trust God actually? Like, what, how, how do you navigate life? And so Amy and I are living in L.A., and I am working at a credit union, and I'm making a lot of money. Not a lot of money. Like a lot of like money for a 25-year-old, right? Not like, not a lot of money. But, you know, I'm like, yeah, wow, this is pretty cool, right? We're living in L.A., no kids, making money. And I'm like, I think I want to go into ministry, right? I'm doing good, right? That's good, you know? I remember like I, I had a meeting with like the bosses. They're like, don't go into ministry. Don't be a pastor. You can make lots of money here. I was like, oh, this is like my deal with the devil. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to ministry. I'm like, oh, I did good. Right? I said no to the evil bankers. So I went to, I went to ministry. We, move, we moved to Kentucky because we didn't want to go into debt. So it's cheap to live in Kentucky. So we go to Kentucky, great seminary. We get there. I'm like navigating, hey, I think I can get done early. I'm going to create my schedule so I spend a lot of time with my wife so we have like a healthy relationship so that we have this good like work-life balance. I'm going to learn. It's going to be great. Oh, my gosh. And for two months, I'm like, psh, 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 like I'm just like strolling and life is good. I'm doing good. Then I get sick. I remember it's, a, it's like closer to Thanksgiving. I'm at my brother's house in Ohio. And I remember just feeling like there was a brick in my stomach with nails on it. And it just was moving everywhere. I'm like, oh, this is weird. And I thought, you know, I was eating a lot of vegetables at the time. I'm like, it's probably the vegetables, right? But don't eat vegetables. Things go on. Remember I said I'm 6'1". I go down to 137 pounds. That was gross. The heat in our apartment didn't work either. And I was just frozen all the time, right? And I remember I'm walking around the seminary campus one day. And I remember it's early in the morning. I'm, I'm, it, was just like, it was just a chore to get out of bed, go to class, come home. I was so sick, so drained, so weak. I was just like, you know, like on your MacBook when you turn the brightness way down so the battery lasts. Like that was like my whole life. 
And I remember I'm walking around the campus and I see this guy and it's early in the morning and he opens a Pepsi and like Fritos. And I remember I'm just like, God, what the heck? Are you kidding me? I eat oatmeal every day for, for breakfast and have a kale mango smoothie for lunch and I ride my bike everywhere. And this good old boy, he's having, he's having like a Super Bowl commercial for breakfast. Why am I sick and he's healthy? I'm doing good. Things should go well. And they're not. And now, God, I've got problems with you. What's going on? And it didn't happen right away. It was still disorientation. It was still silence. But eventually, I started sharing those thoughts with friends. People came alongside me and started saying hard things to me. Like, you're kind of being a jerk, Craig. I'm hearing the Lord through these friends. Okay, there's correction here. What's going on? I'm hearing correction. I'm listening to God, and I just embrace. Like, all right, God, I can't fix this. This is hard. It's not because I did anything wrong and I'm being punished, but I'm learning in this to get corrected. I trust you. That was a process. It didn't happen overnight. When Nick is in your office, don't just walk him through that like it's an easy one, two, three formula. It was hard. It was a process. A lot of tears, a lot of weird moments. But now that I look back on that season, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I got to experience God do crazy stuff crazy stuff that only he could do. Like, yes, in my own strength, I could get done with seminary fast. I could finish classes. I could be the fun guy on campus. That's about it. But in his strength, I got to see him do things, create relationships, open doors that I would have never seen had I embraced my own strength and said, I'm going to muscle through this. It's hard to be disoriented. I don't like preaching the sermon. I wish the message today was like, hey, if you do good, clarity is just the fruit of that. But it's disorienting. But we follow Emmanuel, the one who meets us in the disorientation. And his promise to us, his promise to us is that he will provide. Right? God provides his father and he provides the obedient son. And our response, the just shall live by faith. Father, God, I pray you'd help us to do that. There are lots of, there are so many things, so many people in this room. I don't, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not aware of all the ways we're disoriented. Father, it's easy for us to be disoriented right now as a church. It's easy for us to be disoriented when we look at culture. And even the, the relational problems in our own lives, God, I pray that you'd help us. Meet us in the disorientation. Help, help us to trust you and to take steps of faith where we learn to listen and we learn to embrace our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com.